Loitering in Wonderland Studios presents NyQuil and Cocaine, a face-off novelization. Chapter 2. Sinclair isn't that hot. The screen reads six years later, and we are expecting the fade back on the murder trial of the horses. Instead, we fade into Travolta having a migraine headache in front of a window overlooking the city. He looks distraught, as if debating jumping through said window. He stands there deep in thought as if every second of his life is plagued with a constant loop of the memory of the death of the child from the villainous carousel horses. We see a plaque on the wall that reads, 1994 Presidential Leadership Award to Sean Archer for Outstanding Service to the Benevolent Association of Greater Los Angeles. Either Travolta's character is Sean Archer, or Travolta goes to the Sean Archer's office to relive depressing memories. The plaque is also grossly overrating the city of Los Angeles. It makes the viewer wonder what the Sean Archer did to deserve the award. Considering this movie is set in 1997, and assuming that Travolta is in fact this Sean Archer fellow, he did something awesome three years after the death of the child. Perhaps this will come into play later, or perhaps it's just a random plaque on the wall to prove to us that Sean Archer is a decorated person. We don't know his job yet, so we have no frame of reference as to what the award is for. Wait, the next plaque reads, The Pinnacle Award, given the Sean Archer, Special Agent, Federal Bureau of Investigation. It trails off from there, but now we know he's in the FBI. The plaque to the right of it has a photo of Travolta, but it's too blurry to read the words. This provides a little further proof of Travolta playing Sean Archer, or further proof that Travolta sneaks into Sean's office to cry and hangs up pictures of himself on Sean Archer's walls, either as a prank or a stalking situation. As the camera pans down past the plaques on the wall, it stops on a gun which rests on a dusty desk. This scene is really starting to feel like it's Travolta's suicide scene. Is this a one-off situation we caught, or is this a daily suicide contemplation ritual? This scene quickly cuts, so we may never know. We see several people in an office environment scurrying around saying vague things about needing to hurry. We have to assume they are related to Travolta's location, but there is no connective tissue yet. Travolta holsters his weapon and stares ahead like a lunatic. We begin to hear a creepy choir music. Unless you're in the church music, then it probably isn't creepy to you. The actress's name, CCH Pounder, appears on screen to remind you that CCH is in fact the first name of a human being on this planet. Right as her name hits the screen, we also see a computer image showing the image of Cage's mugshots. According to the size chart behind the profile picture, Cage is 73 units tall. It must be reading his cocaine to blood ratio. The computer image changes to a close-up of name, Caster Troy. We have to assume this is Cage's name in the film. It isn't any weirder of a first name than CCH, so the audience just accepts it. The screen changes yet again to Caster Troy's profile, which contains useless information for the audience, such as his case file number, weight, and height, which is listed as 6 foot 1 inch. We already saw he was 73 units tall, but apparently the movie has already corrected itself. Caster apparently goes by the alias Robert Matthews, but considering how quickly the movie is changing its own information on the man, we cannot trust what the film tells us anymore. We are stuck in a distrusting marriage with the film already, mere minutes into its vast length. The screen also tells us that Caster's vision is 2020. We aren't sure why the FBI is bothering to keep that information available at the ready, but apparently it is something they need to know at a moment's notice. We also see hand, right, which either means that Caster is right-handed or only has one hand at all, and his right hand is the sole hand survivor. Despite the close tabs on Castor's optometrist visits, the FBI was apparently unable to track down where and when Castor was born. The screen does read, age 32, but the line below it says, date of birth is unknown. Again, we are giving conflicting information on Castor. The next computer screen introduces us to Castor Troy's younger brother, Pollux. It mentions that in a 1994 political assassination in Berlin, that Pollux may have been the accomplice to Castor. Since this is also from 1994, we have to assume that this is why that Sean Archer fellow got the plaque. Since the assassination was a success and Castor appears to be alive, it makes you wonder how low the FBI bar is for giving out plaques for excellence. If we ever meet this Sean Archer, it may answer some of our questions. We zoom in on Cage, who is on his knees, fiddling with an orange box. In the six years since we last saw his character, he apparently thought it was a good idea to walk into a barbershop and ask for the Julius Caesar special. Cage is dressed like a priest and wearing a long silver necklace. 
Not quite rosary beads, but more like those terrible necklaces everyone wore in the mid-90s. We see that Cage is in front of a lot of electrical equipment with digital displays. He waves his hand over the orange case he's holding, and a green skull and crossbones appears then fades away. Either the image was a short video, or the skull got nervous of staring at Cage and took off elsewhere. Proof that Cage can even terrify the dead. Perhaps the skull also retreated up Cage's nose to survive the winter. Cage begins to type his numeric passcode into the device. Apparently the code was such a secret that even we, the audience, aren't allowed to see it because the scene just cuts. Travolta looks hungover and walks into a room full of FBI agents all doing overly physical acting around a conference table. From left to right we see Margaret Cho is holding something in her hands and she appears to be walking in place. Another man appears to just be staring out the office window. His back is to us and he does not respond to anything or anyone else in the scene. Another man is awkwardly holding a pot of coffee and a coffee cup in the middle of the room. One of the men is tucked away at the corner of the desk and appears to be just there for moral support. He is failing as the morale in this room appears to be at an all-time low. The man next to him seems as if he's pretending to make a phone call simply because Travolta walked into the room. The next person is a female with short hair and a phone headset in her ear. She looks like the telephone customer service representatives from credit card commercials. She is typing into a computer that is awkwardly on the edge of the table. Mind you, the computer isn't facing out, but instead facing toward the rest of the table. So this woman has to sit uncomfortable while she takes phone calls for customers looking for a lower APR. The last man is standing above her with his hands rested all around the woman. His right arm is on the back of the chair and his left arm is resting on the back of the computer monitor. The man looks very serious about forcing this woman into finding the best credit card for the client. The city outside the window looks like it could either be Los Angeles or Rio de Janeiro. It looks like a sprawling mess of tan buildings and smog. Travolta says, any word from the LAPD intelligence, if there is such a thing? None of his co-workers laugh or respond. They just stand or sit there awkwardly with their props. One man meekly whispers that there isn't any word yet. Travolta spurts out exposition. Of course not, because we're a covert anti-terrorism team that is so secret that when we snap our fingers nothing happens. His teammates do not appear to be taking Travolta seriously. Perhaps after the thousandth time you see a man sneak into a co-worker's office to debate suicide, you stop taking someone seriously in any way. Cage finishes typing in a secret code, which must be several hundred numbers long if he's just now finishing up. The screen on the device reads 264 equals 00 equals 00, which means absolutely nothing to us and is a mathematical mystery. It also says Sinclair is hot. I don't know who this Sinclair fellow is, but apparently Cage is into him or at least his orange devices. The writer of this book is a little jealous because I feel like I am hot as well. Maybe not as hot as Sinclair, but I do alright for myself. Maybe Travolta is Sinclair? Is that why Cage is so obsessed with him? At any rate, I have to severely disagree with the hotness proclamation if that's the case. We pan up to reveal a digital timer that reads 263-59-34-7. This breaks down to 11 days. We are not sure what will happen in 11 days. Perhaps it's the time when the Skull and Crossbones guy will return. Perhaps that's when the trial of the carousel horses starts. We simply cannot know by numbers alone. Whatever the event is, it causes Cage to smile with pride. Maybe he's thinking back on how hot Sinclair is instead of me. Perhaps I'm wrong to be making this about me. This should be about face-off. We proceed to cut back and forth between Cage tucking away his little orange box and Travolta being an extreme asshole to his co-workers. Cage closes the doors to hide the electrical equipment. Once the doors are closed, they appear to be the doors of a giant missile, which is stored inside for some reason. The song Hallelujah begins to play. I'm assuming that's the name of the song, considering it's literally the only goddamn words said in the song. Religious songs aren't exactly known for their groundbreaking lyrical structure. Cage starts to dance around like an awkward priest ballerina on bath salts. We then see the choir who has been singing the soundtrack of our film since the six years later happened. Where have they been hiding this whole time? This movie cannot be trusted. Cage finally finds his way out to the choir line. Once again, Cage proves that he is bad at his job. 
because despite the whole previous scene seeming as if he was hiding something and trying to remain incognito, hence the priest outfit, he proceeds to slap his hands loudly and do a crouched out headbang like a man possessed. Instead of being possessed with evil spirits, this man is possessed with NyQuil and cocaine. Apparently acting like a goddamn lunatic will catch the eye of an attractive underage choir girl. The girl I fucks cage the entire time and pretends to drop her lyric sheet. Not sure why you need a whole book for your lyrics, or even why you need lyrics at all for a song that contains literally only one word, but she drops it all the same. This appears to be the perfect cage bait, because it catches his attention and he picks up the book for her. It should be noted at this point I have noticed more lyrics to this song than I originally thought. I debated going back and editing this section, but this is a real-time book and it will serve as a lesson not to make assumptions about songs I know nothing about. Cage talks to the girl while he positions himself behind her. He then starts to sing very loudly, which should catch some attention but does not. Neither does him grabbing the 14-year-old girl's ass with both hands before he appears to orgasm loudly with staring up at the ceiling. The choir is a sea of white and a head-banging priest in black infiltrated their ranks and molested a child and nobody even raised an eyebrow. This movie is an unfiltered commentary on the sexual misconduct in the Catholic Church. There could be no other way to perceive this scene. No. Other. Way. At any rate, I want to track down this actress and see how she's grown to accept this scene. I wonder if she's told her husband about being in this movie and having her whole ass in Nick Cage's hands while he loudly owed. I wonder if she hides this movie from her children like mommy did a gangbang porno when she was a teenage runaway. I wonder if she's Sinclair. If you somehow managed to enjoy this, go to our Patreon page, become a subscriber, become a hero at patreon.com slash Wonderland Studios. Our website is liwstudios.com, youtube.com slash loiteringawonderland, and send us a message at loiteringawonderland at gmail.com. Until next time, in the meantime, I'm Phoenix West. So long, citizens. So long, Sinclair. I'm coming for you. Perhaps after the thousandth time, thousandth time, perhaps after the thousandth time, you see as I think it's a historic thought to the state suicide, you stop thinking so seriously anyway. <laughs>